Welcome to the Richardson Seventh-day Adventist podcast. I'm so excited for you to join us. Each week we'll bring you a sermon from one of our ongoing series. So enjoy and let's get to it. If you've read The Great Controversy, which I hope everybody here has, you know the story of Luther's appearance at the Diet or Reichstag of Worms in the year 1521, where Luther declared to bishop and emperor that he must follow the Bible rather than the traditions of the Catholic Church. At the heart of Luther's protest was his personal encounter with the gospel. The question is this, how do we find peace with God? Is it through works or spiritual disciplines or following man-made rules? Luther said the only way that we find peace with God is by believing the gospel. The good news that we are forgiven freely when we believe that Jesus Christ bore our sins on Calvary's tree. Of all the messages that I preach as a chaplain to both service members and veterans, and I've continued to serve. I got out a couple of years ago, but I continue to serve. I've been a chaplain for the VFW, for the American Legion, and I'm even going to be doing a chaplaincy internship at the VA two days a week for six months, starting in uh, January, working with uh, veterans on the mental health unit there. Of all the messages that I preach, I think this message of the gospel is the most important. It's the message of Paul in the book of Romans, especially chapter 5. And I read from Romans 5, starting with verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. This is one of the passages that helped Martin Luther discover the gospel. He wrestled with, for years with his spiritual anxiety. He used the German term Anfechtung to describe it. It's also been translated as afflictions or trials. And it was in the gospel that he discovered peace. Luther knew he wasn't the only one that suffered from this kind of anxiety. He knew that members of the military in particular wrestled with such spiritual trials as well. In 1525, he wrote a small book called Whether Soldiers Too Can Be Saved. He wrote the book to answer some questions asked of him by a professional soldier and mercenary, Asaphon Kram. The times were tense. War seemed inevitable. The Lutheran princes were threatened by the Catholic emperor and the other princes with war in the Holy Roman Empire. And both were threatened by the Turks and the emperor, Charles V, who's trying to maintain balance so that there could be a united defense against a Turkish invasion of Europe, which did happen soon thereafter. And in that, many soldiers, especially those who had rediscovered the gospel, questioned their role. Some soldiers have doubts, Luther wrote. Others have so completely given themselves up for lost that they no longer even ask questions about God and throw both their souls and their consciences to the winds. 
I myself have heard some of them say that if they thought too much about these problems, they would never be able to go to war again. One would think that war was such an absorbing matter that they were unable to think about God in their souls. Actually, however, we ought to think most about God in our souls when we're in danger of death. And that may make you think of the old saying that there are no atheists in foxholes. Now, in this pamphlet, Luther's main attempt was to, his main task was addressing anxiety to whether Christians could serve in the military. So he focused on upholding the legitimacy of the profession. He repeated basic principles of what today we call just war theory, telling von Kram that the only legitimate wars are those that are fought as a defense, not an attack trying to just expand your nation's territory or power or to pillage. But then when it comes under attack, a ruler has an obligation to protect their people from the enemy. But he cautioned, you ought not to think that that justifies anything you do and pledge headlong into battle. That does not give you God's guarantee that you will win. Indeed, such confidence may result in your defeat, even though you have a just cause for fighting the war, for God cannot endure such pride. Rather, God wants to be feared, and he wants to hear us sing from our hearts a song like this. Dear Lord, you see that I have to go to war, though I would rather not. I do not trust, however, in the justice of my cause, but in your grace and mercy. For I know that if I were to rely on the justness of my cause and were confident because of it, you would rightly let me fall as one whose fall was just because I relied upon my being right and not upon your sheer grace and kindness. I've been to some antique stores and I've seen German belt buckles from World War I and World War II. And underneath the German Eagle from World War I, underneath the swastika from World War II are the German letters, Gott mit uns, God is with us. That was Germany's confidence. That was the confidence with which even Seventh-day Adventist pastors, Louis Conrade in World War I, an associate of Ellen White's, and an opponent of the gospel at Minneapolis General Conference. He told Adventists, forget about being non-combatants, forget about the Sabbath, you need to pick up arms and defend the fatherland. And he caused a split in the church that has remained to this day. World War II, German Adventists said, oh, this guy Hitler is so great, he's restored our national pride. He's a vegetarian. He promotes the health message. He doesn't smoke. And when the German government said, turn us over to us, all those Jews who've been baptized as Adventists, they willingly turned them over and excommunicated any Adventist who believed that he needed to keep the Sabbath and refrain from bearing arms in Hitler's army. So Hitler, Luther's comments caution us in a couple of different directions against national pride, and against thinking that if God is with us, we can do anything we want. Now, as a chaplain, I've had to teach ethics to soldiers. I've had to advise my commander on what is legitimate and what is not legitimate actions in war. We have a whole body of law of land warfare that tells that. And yet still, we hear of atrocities committed even by American soldiers at places like Milai in Vietnam. Abu Ghraib, 
in Iraq, Guantanamo prison. Those are places where today, even today, people justify it and say, oh, you can't apply moral standards in war. All's fair in love and war. No, that's not how a professional soldier sees it. That is not what we teach. That is totally contrary to the American and to, indeed the whole Western history of just warfare. And that's what Luther was trying to tell von Kram. But this emphasis that he has on humility and trusting God is Luther's response to every one of our qualms and crises. Have faith in God. It isn't about you. It isn't about your strength. It isn't about your knowledge. All of these things can be swept aside in an instant. And then what will you do in your darkness, in your despair, in your doubt? Will you rest upon your own abilities and strengths and skills, weak and frail as you are? Or will you cling to God's mercy and trust in his strength? Some soldiers have doubts, Luther said. That hasn't changed over the past 500 years. There are soldiers and airmen and sailors and Marines and veterans with doubts today. Some have given up. Many are broken and hurting. You've probably heard the number that 20 veterans per day, on average, die by suicide. What that means is over the past 20 years of war, more service members have died by suicide than at the hands of an enemy. That has troubled me as a chaplain. That's why I ended up getting into suicide prevention. Uh, I'm on the advisory board for the Texas Suicide Prevention Council now. That's why I did a, am doing a master of public health degree to learn more about what are the things that cause people to be helpless and what can we do to help give more of a safety net for people who are struggling. These thoughts of suicide troubled me in working with uh, soldiers. It troubled my commanders and my NCOs. I was called down to Weslaco one time. My battalion there, I was the brigade chaplain. We had no battalion chaplains, so they called on me. Three soldiers had died by suicide that week. And they asked me, chaplain, why? Why is it that this unit can have multiple combat tours in Iraq and Afghanistan? We bring every single soldier home alive and in one piece, only to lose them to crime, to suicide, or to accidents. Six months later, that commander, too, died by suicide. Many veterans bear scars. Some you can see, some that don't. Probably all of us have scars, whether firsthand or secondhand by hearing of our friends and knowing what has happened to them. Invisible wars, invisible scars like post-traumatic stress disorder, traumatic brain injury, or a term that is relatively new, military sexual trauma. About one in four women will be raped while in the military before you have your daughter sign up watch a documentary called The Invisible War about how it happens and how many times the military has failed again and again and still continues to fail our women in uniform. Another term we've been using more in recent years, you might not have heard, is called moral injury. 
A VA psychiatrist, Jonathan Shea, coined the term in 1994 in a book called Achilles in Vietnam. And he looked at the experiences of service members in Vietnam and he compared them to the story of Achilles in the Iliad, who when his king Agamemnon stole his bridal prize, a beautiful woman, a captive, that he was given in honor and he said, no, I want her better. What did Achilles do? He went and sat by his ship, threw down his armor and his weapons and said, neither me nor any of my soldiers is going to fight for you, king. And he sat there and fumed. He took his prisoners and he just slaughtered them, something that he was never known to do before. And he just vented. And he saw some of the things of Vietnam soldiers who were taking drugs or fragging their officers as manifesting that same abandonment of interest in the cause, that same moral injury. Others have expanded the concept to refer to the guilt or shame that comes from doing something that you knew to be wrong or failing to do what you needed to do to be right. And the term isn't new, but when I talk about it with my VFW members, they get it. Um, the feelings are familiar to service members of every era. The NCO who feels responsible for the young private that he put on point who walked into the ambush. The one person in a vehicle who survived an IED blast. The airman who knows that a buddy committed a sexual assault but kept his mouth shut and didn't want to turn in a friend. The veterans of Iraq and Afghanistan who have fought over the same ground time and time and time again. My nephews uh, have served over eight and nine combat deployments in 20 years. And so many of these veterans say, now we know how Vietnam vets felt. A whole industry has been built up around treating PTSD and moral injury. Books, conferences, retreats, new drugs, new therapies, and I've followed all of them. Some urge veterans to take refuge in such practices as yoga and sweat lodges. Art, music, equine therapies are available. Others recommend modern versions of pilgrimage or penance, working out the stress and physical exertion, paying back a debt through giving back to others. And these do speak to many. Some similar things have been used over the centuries by warriors of many faiths, many cultures as a way to get rid of the nightmares and cleanse the soul. In the medieval period, soldiers returning from battle sometimes went on pilgrimages to places like Rome, Santiago de Compostela, or Canterbury. Or they joined penitential orders wearing rough clothes and devoting themselves to serving the poor. One veteran who did that was named Francis of Assisi. Broken by his experience of combat and then a couple of years as a prisoner of war in a medieval dungeon, he gathered other combat veterans around him and they renounced violence and vowed to serve all in poverty and humility. Luther wasn't a soldier, but he tried similar ways to try to ease his spiritual suffering and to find a gracious God and he found all these works-oriented practices lacking. He joined the Augustinian monastery. He punished his body through fasting and whipping to show his sorrow. He took the dirtiest jobs in the convent, cleaning the latrines to show his humility. He prayed the liturgy of the hours. He tried the path of the mystics in contemplative prayer and meditation. He went on pilgrimage to Rome and crawled on his knees up a stone staircase. But nothing brought him the peace that he needed. 
Nothing until he believed the good news of the gospel. And that gospel transformed him and sparked the movement that we know as Protestantism. It was a movement founded on a single idea, stated this way by Luther's followers in the Augsburg Confession of 1530. We receive forgiveness of sin and become righteous before God by grace, for Christ's sake, through faith. Would we believe that Christ suffered for us and that for his sake our sin is forgiven and righteousness and eternal life are given to us? We sometimes misunderstand that. We think justification is just kind of an intellectual kind of thing, a doctrinal teaching about something that happened to our sins in the past or our ticket to get through the gates of heaven in the future. But for Luther, it remains a living reality. It continues to be the voice of God speaking to you in your distress and in your trial, saying you are forgiven, you are my child. It is the core experience of the Christian because we still get tempted. We get tempted to sin and we get tempted to doubt. The past comes back to haunt us. Our feelings of anxiety, frustration, fear, self-loathing, guilt, shame, all of these things can still plague the Christian, which is why justification is by faith alone. It isn't about our works. It isn't about our feelings. It is about believing what God says to us. Ellen White put us this way in Steps to Christ, page 51. Do not wait to feel that you are made whole. But say, I believe it, it is so, not because I feel it, but because God has promised. Someone might say, well, I believed it was fine for a while. I felt like I was on top of the world. I felt so light and at peace when I came out of that baptismal font. And then the doubts returned. And that's why I say that for Luther, it isn't a one-time thing. He said, we need to hear that word of promise and cling to it. We need to remember those times when that word was spoken to us, accompanied by an action, like in baptism, where we were not just declared forgiven, but we were washed. We died with Jesus and rose again with him, remembering his promise. Mark 6, 16, 16, the text we had, but it's not sure what to do with says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. For Luther, baptism is a kind of a visible word, he calls it, a promise attached to a visible sign to help us grasp it more firmly. So he said, to appreciate and use baptism aright, we must draw strength and comfort from it when our sins or conscience oppress us and must retort, but I am baptized, and if I'm baptized, I have the promise that I shall be saved and have eternal life in soul and body. Contrast that with how we Adventists sometimes treat it. As something you need to do every time you feel guilty. Oh, preacher, evangelist, I need to be rebaptized. And I've known even kids in academy, not yet 18 years old, who've been rebaptized half a dozen times every time a new week of prayer speaker comes along. Or every time the evangelist comes and doesn't have enough body count uh, from uh, new converts and needs to report how many baptisms he gave to the conference, well, how many here would like rebaptism? And even the elders of the church go up. Our church manual warns about that, against that, by the way, and says it cheapens baptism. If your experience grows cold, what do you do is you turn around. You repent, you get going again, and we call that revival. 
You don't have to get rebaptized. Instead, you go to communion and to the washing of feet. As Jesus said to Peter, John 13, 10, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. That's what Jesus gave us for those times when we stumble upon our Christian walk. That's why communion and the foot washing service are the, should be your happiest time, your most time you're most eager to come to church, not the time you look for an excuse to go to some other church that isn't doing communion that Sabbath. The visiting preacher can say these things, <laughs> since I don't know any of y'all. <laughs> but in communion, as in baptism, we hear and see the word of God in a visible, tangible form. We break the bread and say, this is my body given for you. And take that to heart, that Jesus is addressing you personally. When he, the cup that is shared with the words, this is my blood given for you for the forgiveness of sins, and say that, yes, it is given for your sins. This is what justification is for Luther. Believing those words when they're spoken to us, going to our baptism, going to the Lord's Supper, going to that foot washing and saying, yes, Lord, remind me. Because he says the gospel cannot be preached into our ears enough or too much or beaten into our ears too much. Ellen White says similar things in Desire of Ages, page 6059, that the communion service was not to be a season of sorrowing. It's not a funeral service for Jesus, as some of the elders in my church growing up acted. This is not its purpose. As the Lord's disciples gather around his table, they are not to remember and lament their shortcomings. They are not to dwell upon their past religious experience, whether that has been elevating or depressing. They are not to recall the differences between them and their brethren. The preparatory service has embraced all of this, the foot washing. The self-examination, the confession of sin, the reconciling of differences has all been done. Now they come to meet with Christ. They are not to stand in the shadow of the cross, but in its saving light. They are to open the soul to the bright beams of the Son of Righteousness, with hearts cleansed by Christ's most precious blood, in full consciousness of his presence, although unseen. They are to hear his words, peace I leave you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives, give I unto you. That's the living reality of justification by faith. That's why he gave us these things, to ease our conscience and to ease our spirit and to remind us of his love and his forgiveness. As I say, we don't get to the point where we don't, where we don't need to hear the gospel, where we can pat ourselves on the back and thank God that we're not like those publicans, as in Jesus' parable. We need the preached word. We need hymns that remind us of the gospel. We need these things that remind us of our baptism, and we need communion. Does this mean we don't grow? That's usually where we jump. Oh, you're saying we don't need sanctification. Luther got that too. No, it doesn't mean that at all. We grow. It happens slowly, sometimes so slowly we don't see it. He compared it to a seed that rests in the ground all winter. He said, it's like a dead, moldy, decaying thing covered with frost and snow. But faith and hope assure us that there's something alive there. And it's growing, and it will be fully revealed in God's good time. And sometimes it's only when we're starting to get these gray hairs that we look back on the path and realize how far we've come, and yet how much we still need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. This sense of hope is what we need as service members 
as veterans, as Christians. As we think back on our experiences, when we remember losses, when we remember trauma, when we cry out in despair, wondering if it was worth it, when we remember things we did or failed to do, there is only one thing that gives us peace of mind. There's only one thing which washes away the past and gives us hope for the future, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Amen. You know, even though we do not have the practice of confession to a priest in the Adventist church, I as a chaplain have heard lots of confessions from veterans, from service members, from college students, from fellow pastors, fellow chaplains. Recently, I heard one from one of my VFW members, a Korean war vet who then served as a policeman for many decades had lots of bad memories, haunted by many things that he had done or failed to do over the years, and now he was dying. And a friend called me up and said, hospice says he might last a few days or he might last a few weeks. And I went over there. And Fred, I'll call him, said, uh, yeah, he says, hospice said that they'd offer me a chaplain, but I told him I got a chaplain and he's coming to see me. And he told me about that. You know, and we'd had lots of heart-to-hearts over the years that I knew him. And he told him where, where he stood now as he was looking back and looking forward. He says, what do I got to do to make it right? And I told him those simple stories of the gospel. That story of the thief on the cross. You know, Lord, we deserve it. You don't. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus promised that God is like that father, just ready with his arms open to welcome that prodigal. That parable of the workers in the vineyard, doesn't matter whether they worked all day or whether they just came at sunset. God's grace is there. That it's not a matter of, you know, how many medals and ribbons and doohickeys we have on our uniforms. He was also a mason, had one of those white aprons. You know, that's not going to do it for you. Not your Pathfinder honors, you're your master guide status. But do you come to Jesus as a child and say, Lord, I am not worthy? And we have that promise of Scripture, that beautiful image of our high priest, who is Jesus as our judge. Hebrews chapter 2, chapter 4 presents him as the one who is made in all points like as we are, tempted in all points like as we are. And he is not there ready to throw down lightning at us, but rather he's the one pleading our case and telling Father, I've got him. I've got her. They are mine. Their names are written in my hand in a great poem, hymn by John Wesley. Many of you are wounded, many of you have doubts, many of you are like those soldiers in Luther's day or the soldiers and veterans I've ministered to. Hear this good news, claim it, cling to this promise. 
And may the peace of God, which passes all understanding, comfort your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you were blessed by this sermon and we hope that you can bless others as well. So next week, bring a friend, listen, have a conversation, and remember, you're always in our prayers.